0: This is Strange Assembly episode 307 FizzBand's Treasury of Dragons. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. As you could tell from the title, this episode is about fizzban's Treasury of Dragons, the new Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition book releasing in October 2021. Now, the eponymous Fizban of Fizban's Treasury of Dragons was a character from the original War of the Lance trilogy that kicked off the Dragonlance campaign setting. He was an eccentric old mage who, 35-year-old spoiler alert, was a shapeshifted shifted version of Paladine, the Dragonlance version of Bahamut, the good dragon deity in the Forgotten Realms. Like Xanathar's Guide to Everything and the other named-for-character's five e-books, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons includes various handwritten notes scattered throughout the book. Unsurprisingly, the book focuses exclusively on the dragon part of Dungeons & Dragons, with a few new character options, new dragons, more information on existing types of dragons, and a lot of discussion on using dragons in campaigns. Note that while Fizban's Treasury of Dragons is not a campaign or adventure, it is just as much a Dungeon Master-focused book as the published 5e campaigns and adventures. Fizban's Treasury of Dragons will be of the most value for a DM who crafts their own campaigns and adventures, and who wants to have lots of dragons around, but wants to infuse that experience with some distinctive personality. The very short highlights of this book are, one, there's new dragonborn variants. Two, there are new dragon-themed subclasses for the ranger and the monk. There's a whole new set of five neutral psionic dragon types, and because I grew up with Dragonlance, there are stats for all of the Draconians. Now to go through the contents of Fizban's Treasury of Dragons in detail I want to start with the Gem Dragons and I want to start with them even though if you're in the physical book they're kind of in the back because they're sort of interwoven into a lot of the stuff that goes on in the book. The Gem Dragons are a new set of five dragons Amethyst, Crystal, Emerald, Sapphire, and Topaz to go with the existing metallic and chromatic dragons. Somewhat like how the chromatic dragons have Tiamat and the metallic dragons have Bahamut, the gem dragons have Sardior. The figure of Sardior predates Fizban's treasury of dragons as a lesser deity who was the dragon god of psionics and the neutral gem dragons. In the mythology presented here, which I believe is new, Sardior is presented as the first dragon created by Bahamut and Tiamat, who then helps them create the chromatic and metallic dragons. This mythology presents the dragons as the very original inhabitants of a first world that was later invaded by deities from the outer planes, which resulted in the fragmentation of the first world into the various worlds of the material plane, and the spread of the creations of those invading deities. The true dragons, then, are the most pure embodiments of the material plane, while most other beings, humans, dwarves, and the like, are combinations of the material plane and an outer plane. Think of it as the Dungeons and Dragons versions of Cartesian dualism. The gem dragons are, however, still psionic and still typically neutral, right? So metallic, good... Gem-neutral, chromatic evil, right? Again, now the the five dragon types, there's the amethyst dragons, they're the mightiest of the five. They're able to manipulate gravity and they deal force damage with their breath weapon. It's supposed to be almost like a mini singularity in their mouth that they then release the energy of. And then that breath weapon not only does damage, but it can reduce the target's speed to zero. You'll see that with all of the breath weapons of the gem dragons they don't just do damage they have some secondary effect when you fail the save crystal dragons are connected to the positive energy plane they're very shiny and their breath weapons deal radiant damage and can also heal the dragon emerald dragons are uh, secretive and their breath weapons deal psychic damage and can disorient the victim sapphire dragons are on the sneaky ambushy side of things as well Their breath weapons deal sonic damage and can incapacitate. Finally, topaz dragons are linked to the negative energy plane. Their breath weapon deals necrotic damage and can weaken affected targets. Alright, so now that we've got those gem dragon basics, let's back it up a little bit and go to the player options, right? Because this is primarily a DM book, but of course the player options are going to be the most widespread interest. Uh, And the biggest addition is probably that there are three new dragonborn variants, right? Makes sense for a dragon-focused book, right? The baseline dragonborn in the player's handbook can pick any of the five chromatic dragons or any of the five metallic dragon types. They get resistance to damage of their ancestry's type, you know, acid damage, lightning damage, whatever. And they also get a breath weapon that's either a 30-foot line or a 15-foot cone that's dictated by which of the 10 they picked. Now in Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, there are three variants that are called Chromatic Dragonborn, Metallic Dragonborn, and Gem Dragonborn. All three of these are new, right? A Chromatic Dragonborn is not quite the same as a standard Dragonborn who has chosen a chromatic dragon ancestry. Overall, all three of the new variants are somewhat more powerful than the standard dragon board. All three of them still get that damage resistance. All three of them get breath weapons, but the breath weapons aren't quite the same. The damage scales differently. It starts out a little bit lower. For example, at first level it does 1d10, or on average 5.5 damage, instead of 2d6 for an average of 7 and then, you know, at the higher levels, it'll do more damage. So once you get up to 17th level, it does 4 10 or an average of 22 damage, instead of 5d6, or an average of 17.5. The tipping point comes around 11th level for when the variants do, do more damage. But it's only a little bit more and then a little bit less on, on either side of it. Note that all dragonborn of the same variant now have either a line or a cone rather than having variation within their overall category. For example, a standard Dragonborn with Brass Dragon Ancestry has a 30-foot line breath weapon. But if you're a Metallic Dragonborn who has Brass Dragon Ancestry, you get a 15-foot cone because all Metallic Dragonborn have a 15-foot cone breath weapon. Additionally the dragonborn can now use their breath weapon a number of times a day equal to their proficiency modifier, but they only recharge at a long rest instead of once, but that they can recharge with a long or a short. So a low-level character who's taking multiple short rests per day with a standard dragonborn will get to use the breath weapon more, but in general I think the characters are going to tend to get more breath attacks with the new variants. Note that Matching those dragon types from before, the, the dragonborn breath weapons are Force, Radiant, Psychic, Thunder, and Necrotic, you know, depending on which one you choose. In addition, each of these variant dragonborn has an entirely new ability. Chromatic dragonborn can, once per day, make themselves immune to the Ancestry's damage type. Not just resistant, but immune. Metallic dragonborn gain a second breath weapon attack, usable once a day, that either can enervate enemies or push them back. And then Gem Dragonborn can send short-range telepathic messages. Note, they can only send, they can't read minds. And then they can briefly fly once a day. So, like I said, you if you're interested in Dragonborn, you get several new options. They're slightly more powerful. In addition to that, the other main player content is two new subclasses. A monk subclass, the Way of the Ascendant Dragon, and a ranger subclass, the Drake Warden. The Way of the Ascendant Dragon is probably most familiar to folks as the Order of the Platinum Dragon, which is a Faerunian monk order dedicated to Bahamut as the Grand Master of Flowers. Magic the Gathering players may recognize this as the guise Bahamut takes in his Planeswalker card in the set Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Way of the Ascendant Dragon monks seek to emulate dragons and achieve spiritual unity with the material plane, because remember right we're now presenting dragons as the most pure original manifestation of of life on the material plane. These monks gain several immediate benefits upon choosing the subclass at third level. They can take a re-roll on an intimidation or a persuasion check. They get to learn a new language, presumably draconic if you know if the character didn't have it already. They then get the ability to deal Acid, cold, Fire, Lightning, or Poison damage when they do an un- unarmed strike, and they get a Breath Weapon usable several times a day. That's damage will then later scale with the character's Martial Lights dive. At higher levels, characters will be able to get an Aura that can scare things or resist damage, and eventually a much bigger Breath Weapon, and Blight Sight, and another Area of Effect attack, but you're getting a lot of it loaded up right there at third level when you choose the subclass. For the ranger, drake wardens are a pet or mount subclass, except instead of getting a normal animal companion, they get a drake. At third level, the drake mostly goes around looking cool, but also increases the damage from one melee strike a turn by 1d6. At seventh level, the drake grows wings and becomes big enough to use as a mount, although it's not big enough to both fly and use as a mount. It'll get that later. Plus, it grants damage resistance at higher level, The Drake Warden gets their own breath weapon, the Drake gets even bigger, does even more damage, that sort of stuff. I mean, honestly, the Drake Warden beats the pants off of the basic Beastmaster Ranger, from mechanical terms, although, that's kind of a low bar, what with Ranger being mechanically the weakest of the, when you're looking at the the Player's Handbook base versions. Other player stuff, uh, there are some Dragon-themed spells, uh, there wasn't really anything that lit my world on fire. There was kind of a a cool thematic third level spell card, Shardalon Stride, that lets the caster move faster and run around and avoid attacks and not get attacks of opportunity and then damage anything they run by. But it's hard to see the damage output of that matching the damage output of a more traditional AoE spell. Might be more useful. There's uh, Rolotham's Psychic Lance that's named after an Emerald Dragon, by the way. That's got decent damage and it has an uncommon damage type, psychic, and the saving throw to avoid it is intelligence. So, you know, if you're the sort who likes to have different damage types and different saving throws, depending on which target you're going after, that might be of interest. Magic items are really a DM thing. I'll include them here in the player discussion because I know players like to see new magic items. But there are 13 of these, more than half of them are legendary, so you're not going to see them in campaigns all that much as I've already talked about the dragon lance campaign setting so you'll be unsurprised to know that I'm most interested in the dragon lances which are a classic and iconic weapon from that setting in their five e iteration dragon lances are plus three weapons that then deal extra damage to a dragon but also let a nearby friendly dragon take an extra attack if you have ones uh, represents how in Crin, you had right these knights who would wield the dragon lances, they would ride the good metallic dragons into battle against the, the evil chromatic dragons. On the more practical utility items, right on the uncommon end, you've got a dragon hide belt plus one, which seems to be the most useful of these more basic magic items. It's monks only, it increases the save DC of all of their key features, and it can regenerate key points once a day. Seems really pretty handy for most monks. There's also a little bit more magic item-wise. It introduces the concept of horde magic items, which are basically a, a normal sort of item that has become magic because it has sat long enough in a dragon's horde, and it can become more powerful depending on how old the dragon is and how long it's been sitting in the horde. There are also draconic gifts, which is another you know, one of these random awards that a DM might choose to gain out, like you might get a blessing from a deity or something like that. And you might get one of these when if you kill a dragon in a great battle or if you do a great favor for a dragon, a couple of them seem a little good, a couple of them seem a little, you know, not particularly useful at all, such as the way of the world. But that's really it for the player content. After that, everything really is Dungeon Master- focused. The, the the first basic unit of this is that there are new BCR entries, right? So in addition to the five gem dragons which I already talked about, the new BCR entries tend to fall into a few categories. There's legit new dragons, there's deep dragons, were right kind of like the drow or the Juragar, but they evolved from dragons instead of elves or dwarves, moonstone dragons who are dragons from the Feywild. Then there are dragon-adjacent creatures who have the dragon type, but are not true dragons. Like there's dragon elves who are commonly used as mounts, lion drakes, and then just sea serpents. There are also entities who are in one way or another what's left of a dead dragon. Obviously, you know, some of these were already out there, like the draco lich. but here we get a draconic shard which is when the mind and will of a deceased gem dragon gets stuck in an item. There's a dragon elder brain, which is what you get when a an elder brain takes over a dragon to use as you know, basically a mobile brine pool. There are ghost dragons, and then there are hollow dragons, which is a voluntary sort of undeath so that the dragon can continue to guard something. There are also things like dragon blood oozes and dragon bone golems, but these are Basically, just someone else making something out of dead dragon parts. Additionally, there are some beings who come into the existence from the sheer magical oomph of dragons, such as animated breath weapons or an eyedrake, which is what you get when a beholder dreams too long about that dragon who's been ruining its day. And of course, as I noted earlier, there's a full away of draconians. The Draconians were originally designed for the Dragonlance campaign setting, where they have these specific names, Boz Draconians, Sevac Draconians. Draconians are created from the corruption and destruction of dragon eggs. In Kryn, in the Dragonlance campaign setting, this was specifically of metallic dragon eggs, and depending on which kind of metallic dragon egg was being used would change which kind of of Draconian you got. That explicit connection does not have to be there if you're outside of Dragonlance. So here, you still got five types, but they have more generic terms. So there are Draconian Dreadnoughts, which is the equivalent of Sivak Draconians, Draconian Foot Soldiers, or Boz, Draconian Infiltrators, Capac Draconians, Draconian Mages, or Bozak Draconians, and Draconian Masterminds, or Arak Draconians. Other than how awesome they are from having, you know, been in Dragonlance and a classic monster in that setting, the most mechanically noteworthy thing about the Draconians is their death throws. right? They all have these very spectacular death throws. You know, they, they turn to stone to trap the weapon in the body that you just used to kill them, or they dissolve into acid that goes over everyone near them, or they just literally blow up, that kind of thing. A couple other random sort of things there, like if you if you like mimics and who doesn't, you can make a mimic out of an entire dragon horde. Or you can kinda of go the other way and they have things that aren't technically mimics, but they serve a mimic-like function because they look like coins, but they're really these little monster scarabs. You can either have one of them or a swarm of them. Note that there are a a relative pile of high CR entries in here, right? There's it's it's a bunch of dragons and other stuff right so there's a lot of high challenge ratings that includes a, a number of 27 or higher challenge rating things including aspects of bahamut and tiamat and also different great worm variants not that they don't have some lower stuff there we got like got the wormlings and everything too but you're really kind of loading up on some higher cr material beyond the gem dragons and the bestiary sort of stuff that i i've just mentioned I'd kind of divide the material in Fizban's Treasury of Dragons into two categories. Stuff that might be useful whenever a dragon shows up and stuff that requires a whole campaign about dragons to really shine. Luckily, there's a lot more of the former than the latter. Within the this-can-work-for-any-dragon-you-throw-in category, there's advice on role-playing dragons, there's advice on constructing encounters with dragons, and there's a section called quote-unquote, dragon adventures. You might think that that's particularly useful for making dragon adventures, but don't get excited as it's super vague and it's like two pages long. There's also a pile of random tables scattered throughout some of these sections I'm going to talk about. I personally continue to have no interest in randomly rolling up things like physical features or personality quirks. I mean, I think these tables are sometimes useful for Inspiration when you're a little bit stuck, but I don't think there's a lot of value add there. More useful is guidance on crafting dragon lairs, which includes a sample layer with a map for all of the 15 standard dragon types and new suggestions for lair actions and regional effects, right? Because even if this is the one blue dragon that's going to come up in this game, It's nice to have it not show up in exactly the same way as the one blue dragon who showed up in the last campaign, right? This material is a bit longer for the original dragon types, right? The the gem dragons just got full-length stat blocks for the first time, so they don't have the same kind of here's new lair actions, here's new regional effects, because they just got any lair actions or regional effects. Uh, You also get write-ups here for deep dragons, dragon turtles, fairy dragons, moonstone dragons, and shadow dragons including a lair discussion, but not a lair map. There's a lot of material here, like that stuff right there on the dragon lairs and such, that is over a third of the book. There's also guidance on constructing a dragon's hoard. I have to admit that at this point in my life, I am not excited enough about giant piles of treasure to be that interested in this, but, right, this is the place to go to if you want to know exactly how many art objects or gems or mundane items or coins might be in the hoard of a dragon of a particular age. Now, that all that, right, you can use if you're just doing an adventure with a dragon, like if you're just adding one dragon in there. Then there's that campaign-focused advice. The campaign-focused advice is overall more detailed than the adventure-focused advice, it, not, not, not the lair stuff, but just the generic adventure stuff but there's a significant quantity of this campaign-focused stuff that's probably not that useful unless you really want that dragon-focused campaign but are drawing a complete blank. For example, there's a list of possible roles that a dragon might take in a campaign or what kind of followers a dragon might have, but it kind of amounts to a list of any sort of NPC that might be around, except it's a dragon. It's a dragon, warlord, it's a noble, but it's really a dragon. It's a teacher, but it's really a dragon in shapeshifting. That sort of thing. The advice on dragon campaigns is, of course, tailored to dragon campaigns. And then, right, the, specifically the section called dragon campaigns. There's also a section on draconic organizations, which is really only suited for a, a dragon-focused campaign. If you're not having a dragon-focused campaign, it's hard to have a whole organization of dragons come up enough to be of that much use. There's a few other little things that I found noteworthy. This is, of course, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, and Fizban is a specific character from the Dragonlance campaign setting. I do have to say that I don't know that the little notes from Fizban here felt terribly like Fizban, at least to the me who's sitting here right now dredging up memories of when I most recently read the War of the Lance trilogy, which was probably a decade ago. Right? Fizban's whole shtick included being kind of confused and quote-unquote accidentally doing things that ended up being rather important. It's hard to infuse that sort of oblivious confusion into a series of notes that are coherent and knowledgeable on the subject. So the tone of the notes tend to be of someone who knows what he's talking about But doesn't necessarily care about the sort of things that you or most characters would care about. So expect commentary on things like how awesome dragons are, or this particular dragon's baking skills, or how various words in the common tongue were inspired by some ancient dragon name. I made a reference already once to the Magic the Gathering expansion, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. If you Play Magic, or you looked at that expansion online. You may notice that there's actually a significant overlap of the art between those two. So, right when I flipped through this book, my eleven-year-old was like, "Ooh, ooh, look, that's Dragon Disciple. That's Dragon Disciple. Ooh, I know that card." So you've got that in there. So, final thoughts to kind of go back to where we started. Right, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons isn't an adventure or a campaign, but it is just as DM-focused a book as an adventure or a campaign book is. There are a few new player options, and then the rest of the book is really only for the DM. While adventure and campaign books are aimed at a DM who wants things all laid out for them, which is the camp I'm usually in, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons is for a DM who wants to craft their own tales, and of course wants those tales to involve lots and lots of dragons. Players looking for a greater tie-in to dragons will like getting, I think, the three new Dragonborn variants. After all, Being a dragonborn is the most straightforward way to build a draconic history into a D&D character. And if you want that sort of thing, you'll probably like that the new variants are a bit more powerful than the standard option. The Drake Warden Ranger is way better than the Beastmaster Ranger if you want kind of the pet or a mount option, although it's not really saying much to be better than the Beastmaster Ranger. You also get the Way of the Ascendant Dragon Monk subclass, which is also pretty solid, and between all of those, there's just a lot of ways to gain breath weapons, to deal elemental damage, and to resist that sort of damage. Beyond those primary player options, the other stuff, like the spells, is eh, not terribly breathtaking. From a DM perspective, I think that the best part of the book is the new bestiary entries, including the five new dragon types, lots of extra suggestions for lair actions and regional effects, and the pre-made layers for different dragon types. I think that probably the weakest part of the book is just the general advice. To me, there's real value in putting in a map of a lair and a description of a lair for a red dragon. There isn't really a ton of value in suggesting that, oh, hey, what if you had a red dragon who's a warlord leading an invasion? I, I, don't, I don't feel like I need a book to give me that sort of suggestion. It's just not detailed enough to be useful to me. Although I would also note that in that big huge lair section, alongside with the great suggestions like, again, lair actions and regional effects, there's also a decent amount of space taken up by much less useful suggestions like what sort of art objects different dragon types might have in their lair. I'm not saying there's nobody out there who has an interest in that sort of stuff, but to me, it just is not the same kind of, of value. I am just I don't really kind of want to sit down and go through with my players about exactly what kind of art it was. They're just going to sell it. So overall, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons will be at its peak value for the DM who wants to add more dragon content to their games while not repeating the same old dragon types and personalities. It may also be a value to old reviewers like me who want to go back and relive what we can of Dragonlance from our youth because this is probably as close as we're going to get. You've been listening to the Strange Assembly podcast. You can find this podcast on the web at www.strangeassembly.com or you can subscribe to it on the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Music Store, or at whatever your preferred podcatcher is. If you look for the Strange Assembly podcast on your preferred podcatcher and you don't find it, please let me know so I can fix that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear your comments, criticism, and other feedback. You can also reach us at the usual social media. We are at Strange Assembly on Twitter, Facebook.com slash and at Strange Assembly on Instagram. If you'd like to hear these podcasts with pictures and see some other things, you can find our video channel on YouTube. It's just Strange Assembly there too. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.